Good afternoon. I hope and trust you had a, a wonderful morning. Uh, it is my honor to welcome back a distinguished uh, alumnus of the law school and a huge figure in the shaping of American business law, uh, Vice Chancellor Travis Laster. Uh, Travis was the son of traveling educators, so he was born in Beirut, London, and he graduated summa cum laude from Princeton. Uh, he then came to UVA Law School, where he was similarly successful. He was an editor on the Law Review. He graduated Order of the Coif, not just Order of the Coif, but also first in his class, uh, earning him the Law School Alumni Association Award for Academic Excellence, uh, which was given to the graduate with the best academic record. Uh, and while he was here, he not only got his JD, but also a master's in government during his time here, which I think he's put to good use. Uh, upon graduation, uh, Travis clerked for Judge Jane R. Roth of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit before joining Richards, Leighton, and Finger in 1996, began as associate, ascended through the ranks, and eventually directed the corporate de department of the largest firm in Delaware. In 2005, Travis partnered up with fellow UVA law alum Kevin Abrams of the class of 1984 to create their own law firm, Abrams and Laster. Uh, based in Wilmington, Abrams and Laster has become the uh, premier corporate and business law boutique law firm uh, in Delaware. Delaware, and it is now actually, and we'll get to why, as you, I think you know, uh, it is no longer uh, uh, Abrams and Laster. It's now Abrams and Bayless. Uh, A. Thompson Bayless of the class of 2003 has continued the tradition of uh, amazing UVA law graduates practicing uh, business law in Delaware. Uh, as a founding partner, uh, Travis handled high stakes litigation and transactional advice on technical matters of Delaware law, which, as you all know, uh, is crucial because Delaware is the hub for uh, incorporation uh, and for multinational businesses. Four years after that, Travis earned the nomination for vice chancellor to fill a vacancy on the Court of Chancery uh, from former Delaware Governor Jack Markell, who noted that Travis's career has spent his career litigating in front of the Court of Chancery and developed an outstanding reputation for his intelligence and integrity. His peers praised him as an experienced and well-respected veteran corporate litigator with well-fitting judgment and temperament. Professor Emeritus Larry Hammermesh of Widener Law hailed vice chancellor Travis Laster's nomination as an excellent choice and called him a very careful student of corporate and business law. No surprise, the Delaware Senate agreed and confirmed him to the post for a 12-year term. He is now 10 years into that term. Uh, as vice chancellor, Travis is front and center in the legal conversation and the development of industries across the globe. Uh, the, De the Delaware Court of Chancery, as I'm sure most of you know, is a preeminent bellwether of American enterprise and has a profound consequence over the entire body of corporate and business law. Over 1 million businesses have incorporated in the state, including more than 66% of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, Travis has taken on multiple high-profile high cases while he's been on the court including those involving Facebook, Hewlett-Packard, and other Silicon Valley giants, as well as those not in Silicon Valley. Uh, Travis has noted that serving on the Court of Chancery has been his, quote, dream job, and references to him the personal importance of the call to public service. Um, I'm happy to say that Travis is not only our graduate, he has also lent us his expertise before today as an adjunct faculty member here at the law school. So this is a wonderful homecoming, uh, and I would note, but just before I, I ask 
ask for your applause. I just want to note, it's a homecoming today, uh, not just for Travis, but for so many alumni uh, who are here in the audience participating on the panels and others from uh, the field. And we are so happy to have all of you here for this terrific event. So please join me in welcoming, welcoming back Vice Chancellor Travis Laster. We are so thrilled to have him here. Thank you very much for that introduction. All those uh, positive comments were before I started issuing my decisions. I uh, noticed there weren't any from more recently. Uh, but it is, it is great to be back here in Charlottesville. I hope uh, all of you all take a moment and just uh, think uh, what reasons you have to be grateful to be here. It's a, it's a great school and a, and a great community uh, with great people. And uh, so it's a, it's a good opportunity to stop and take a moment and, and appreciate uh, the opportunities uh, that uh, we've all been privileged to have by being part of the Virginia, Virginia family. Um, I want to continue the theme today that we've already been discussing, which is uh, activist directors. And what I want to talk about is fiduciary duties of directors in activist situations. Um, we all take it as a given that directors owe fiduciary duties and are fiduciaries. Uh, in, the, in the United States, courts established that principle uh, in the early to mid-19th century. Uh, befitting its relatively late entry into the stockholder incorporation game, that was in 1899, uh, the Delaware Supreme Court didn't embrace this principle until 1922. Uh, but even then, uh, the Delaware Supreme Court was able to say that this was a principle that could not be seriously questioned. It was undisputed that directors owe fiduciary duties. Um, but nearly 100 years later, questions remain. And they necessarily remain because fiduciary duties are a general principle. They're a genuine, general concept that have to be applied to contextual situations. One of those contextual situations is an activist scenario. So the questions naturally uh, arise. How do fiduciary duties operate when a board responds to an activist campaign? How do fiduciary duties apply to an activist representative who becomes a member of the board. To help frame the analysis for today, I'll enlist the aid of a famous quotation from Justice Felix Frankfurter of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, he observed the following. To say that a man is a fiduciary only begins the analysis. It gives direction to further inquiry. To whom is he a fiduciary? What obligations does he owe as a fiduciary? In what respect has he failed to discharge these obligations? And what are the consequences of the deviation from duty? Let's try to answer these four questions today for a director of a Delaware corporation in the context of an activist scenario. So adapted to the situation we want to discuss, the first question that Justice Frankfurter would ask is, to whom is the director of fiduciary? For corporations, the uh, debate on this point largely centers on whether fiduciary duties run to the stockholders or whether they run to the corporation. Uh, the latter formulation and proponents of the latter formulation generally believe that having fiduciary duties run to the corporation permits consideration of a broader range of constituencies, such as employees to the community in which the corporation operates. Uh, even broader formulations take in uh, quite laudable goals, such as uh, sustainability or environmental concerns. Um, by contrast, 
those who focus on stockholder interests tend to see that as narrowly mercenary and obligating directors uh, to ignore other concerns entirely. Um, now, as a, a normative matter, the folks on, on these various sides of these debates, they all have some good and some not so good arguments uh, in favor of their position. And there's nothing inherent in the corporate form that requires a particular outcome. Different jurisdictions can reach different uh, results. In fact, the, the majority rule in uh, US jurisdictions is arguably the constituency model, because many states have established constituency statutes that expressly authorize boards to consider interests other than the stockholders uh, when making decisions. Uh, whatever your normative views may be, though, in Delaware, there is a clear and definitive answer to this question. Um, Delaware stands firmly in the stockholder as beneficiaries camp, but importantly, it's not in the narrow mercenary form. Delaware's clarity on this issue is long-standing. Uh, remember I said Delaware was relatively late to the game on, on getting into the incorporation game and also on a addressing the fiduciary principle, but in the 1920s when courts were first articulating this concept, they were very clear who the beneficiary fiduciary duties was. Directors were put in the status of the fiduciary and the stockholders were cast as beneficiaries. They were the, uh, the, the recipients of, of those duties uh, by analogy to the beneficiaries of trustees. Delaware's modern explanation is a little different. The modern explanation cites section 141A. If you ever want to know what the catechism of Delaware law is, is it's section 141A. Uh, it says, the business and affairs of every corporation shall be managed by or under the direction of the board of directors. That's something that Delaware lawyers recite in their sleep. You really can't have a telephone call with a Delaware lawyer without hearing them say it. Um, because this provision gives virtually plenary authority to the board of directors, it puts the stockholders in a subsidiary role. And the Delaware Supreme Court has explained, and now I'm quoting, the existence and exercise of the board's authority under section 141A carries with it fundamental fiduciary obligations to the corporation and its shareholders. Wow, that sounded like an answer. To the corporation and its shareholders. Note the conjunctive formulation. Under Delaware law, fiduciary duties run in the first instance to the corporation, but to the corporation for the ultimate benefit of the shareholders. In other words, fiduciary duties run with the goal of maximizing the value of the corporation, but only because value inures over the long term to those residual claimants who hold the shares. We thus have our, our answer to Justice Frankfurter's first question. As a matter of Delaware law, fiduciary duties run to the corporation for the benefit of the stockholders, putting Delaware uh, in the stockholder camp. That answer, however, is perhaps not as helpful as it might be. Uh, we live in a world of uh, specialization where we each can get things the way we want. We can get our Starbucks coffee 50 different ways. Uh, so not surprisingly, our specialized and individualized world offers many types of stock. Different varieties of preferred stock, tracking stocks, common stock with special rights, common stock with diminished rights like uh, non-voting stock, as well as plain vanilla common stock. We also have different types of stockholders. We have activist stockholders, we have long-term holders, uh, we have momentum investors, we have news, uh, noise traders, we have the distinction between record and beneficial holders. So fo a follow-on question naturally arises, and I, we actually heard it on one of the earlier panels. It may be the stockholders, but which stockholders? 
So let's start with types of stock. By default, under the statute, the DGCL, a share of stock does not carry any special rights, powers, preferences, or privileges. It confers the right to vote in elections of directors, and by statute, at least one class of shares has to have that right. It also carries a statutory right to vote on fundamental corporate changes, such as mergers, charter amendments, sales of all or substantially all the assets, and dissolution. Um, otherwise, it has the right to the residual claim in dissolution. There isn't even a mandatory right to dividends. Those are only uh, if the board declares them. So in terms of economic rights, what I have just discussed is it. That is it. Uh, now, there are two other rights that folks often mention. Uh, uh, the first is the um, uh, ability to sell. That follows simply from the fact that shares are private property. We live in a market economy. Personal property can therefore be uh, sold. Uh, there's also the ability of, of shareholders to sue. That also flows from the concept of property. If somebody interferes with your property, you have a right to sue. But that's it. You have, that is all we're talking about in terms of rights and stock. And as I mentioned earlier, it's given these, uh, given this relative paucity of rights, stockholders exist in a disabled state. And it's because of this disabled, relatively disempowered state vis-a-vis -vis the board that it's very easy for 19th century and early 20th century courts to view them as the beneficiaries of fiduciary duties, just as beneficiaries of a trust are relatively powerless compared to the trustee. From this baseline, any other right that a stockholder obtains, either under the charter or in a stockholder agreement, is a contractual right that goes beyond what the equity would have by default. And there's the rub. These rights are contractual. You don't owe fiduciary duties when you're dealing with someone who holds a contractual right. That relationship is arm's length and contractual. It's not equitable and fiduciary in nature. Consequently, a board does not have a fiduciary duty to promote or enhance the value of a contractual preference or contractual right that a share of stock holds. Put more bluntly, the contractual rights that may be built into a share of preferred stock or a share of common stock with enhanced voting rights those are contractual rights. They have no greater entitlement to fiduciary protection than perhaps the terms of a bond indenture or a loan, a, loan, a loan agreement. So what this means is a board does not owe fiduciary duties to preferred stockholders when considering whether or not to take corporate action that might impair their rights. A board only owes fiduciary duties to equity holders when dealing with the equity in terms of their uh, status in the aggregate. A simple way to say this is that fiduciary duties run to the common stockholders. That's not entirely accurate because fiduciary duties will also run to the holders of special rights when they're not exercising their special rights. So if someone takes off their special rights hat and is simply being treated uh, pro rata with the rest of uh, the common equity, they're entitled to fiduciary duties, they are the beneficiary. But for shorthand, uh, I'm going to uh, talk in terms of the common stockholders. So we've dealt with types of stock. We now know we can set aside all those other types of stock. We're talking about the common. 
Now let's talk about types of stockholders. As I said in front, there are long-term holders, short-term traders, activists, momentum investors, even controlling stockholders. How do you decide uh, among them? They all have different uh, uh, preferences. They all have different uh, uh, priorities. Uh, what is a board to do? Well, fiduciary duties simplifies things. For purposes of fiduciary duties, it doesn't matter. For purposes of fiduciary duties, directors are charged with exercising their own judgment. And we heard that a couple times on previous panels too, but I think it's, it's worth uh, mes uh, uh, mentioning again. Directors are, in, are obligated to exercise their own judgment to determine what will maximize the value of the equity as a whole. And here's the critical step, based on a presumptively perpetual time horizon. Why is it a presumptively perpetual time horizon? This fiduciary duty focus it arises from the structure of the DGCL itself. Just like we look to section 141A for the continuing vitality of fiduciary duties, we look to the, the constitutional structure of our statute to give us an indication of where that fiduciary focus lies. By default, corporations have a perpetual existence. Unlike us, they presumptively live forever. Equity capital is permanent capital. You may be able to sell to another holder and through the virtue of that stockholder level sale, get your money back, but the capital that you contributed to the entity remains locked in. It is perpetually locked in unless until the board distributes uh, uh, or dissolution. So what we have is an entity that is presumptively perpetual with a class of investors who are presumptively in for the longest of long hauls. That is forever. Now, consequently, the fiduciary focus is on that dimension. You are investing as the people in charge of an entity with a long-term focus that is presumptively forever. Now, at this point, some people get confused. So let me just put this on the table right away. A duty to maximize long-term value in this context does not mean the duty to ensure the perpetual existence of the corporation. Those are different things. It is entirely possible that a fiduciary could determine that a near-term sale or other short-term horizon event uh, nevertheless is value maximizing even when viewed against the alternatives that one could have uh, uh, over the long term. So imagine you're dealing with a trade bidder that has access to synergies. They may be able to pay more for your entity today than you could ever generate over the long term discounted back to the present. Um, or the technology that you are currently invested in, you may know, is on its way out. Uh, the folks who ran Blockbuster, the folks who made horse and buggy whips, they did not breach their fiduciary duties by selling before those newfangled devices like online streaming uh, or that uh, crazy horseless carriage came into vogue. They actually maximized value over the long term for the holders of presumptively perpetual capital by getting out before the crisis hit when they knew uh, their company still had money or still had value. And it's up to the directors to figure out what is uh, the time frame 
This is part of their fiduciary judgment. As the Delaware Supreme Court has said, directors generally are obligated to chart a course for the corporation, which is in the best interest of stockholders, without regard to a fixed time horizon. It's presumptively long-term, but you may need to make short-term decisions. So what flows from this? Well, several important things. First of all, directors do not have any duty to maximize the current value of the stock. Directors can take into account the current value of the stock price. They can use that as a point of information, but they are not required, not obligated, to manage to the market. Second thing, uh, directors do not have a fiduciary duty to follow the wishes of particular stockholders, or even, if necessary, a majority of the stockholders. Directors uh, are, in fact, the Delaware Supreme Court have said that directors may not delegate their judgment to the stockholders. The duty to act for the ultimate benefit of this fiduciary capital as a whole precludes the ability to pick and choose among the stockholders and, it, and uh, a desire to serve uh, only the interests of uh, a particular subset. So we're now in a position to complete our answer to Justice Frankfurter's first question. As a fiduciary, a director owes duties to the corporation for the benefit of the undifferentiated equity as a whole, as if it were held by a single owner who was indifferent as the time horizon for maximizing value, who had delegated the decision on that to the directors, but who was indifferent also as to any factor other than maximizing value. It's as if I gave my capital to someone else and said, do the best you can for me, I know you're going to do it, uh, and it's going to be presumptively permanent, but if you have to get out early, that's fine. So that's to whom the duties are owed. Now let's move to Justice Frankfurter's second question. What fiduciary obligations are owed? And it's important to recognize that this question is different from the third question, which is how do you know when a fiduciary has breached their obligations? Um, in Delaware, we maintain this distinction, we just use different language. In Delaware, we speak in terms of the standard of conduct, which is what duties are owed, and the standard of review, which is how we determine whether a breach has occurred. For purposes of the standard of conduct, Delaware directors owe two duties, loyalty and care. Of these, it's really loyalty that deserves our attention because loyalty is the embodiment of the fiduciary principle. The fiduciary principle is to act for the benefit of another. To act for the benefit of another means to be loyal to the other and, in fact, act for their benefit and not your own. Care is really simply a subsidiary means by which one fulfills this overall fiduciary principle, i.e. using care uh, to get to the result that you believe uh, uh, is what is in the best interest of the other. Uh, it's also true that in the real world, care is, is um, practically uninteresting uh, because it's enforced only for gross negligence and because exculpation makes realistic remedies uh, unavailable. So let's focus on loyalty. Um, in terms of the standard of conduct, the duty of loyalty is powerful and strict. So we have the Guth v. Loft decision from 1939, uh, which speaks in this ringing language. Corporate fiduciaries are not permitted to use their position of trust and confidence to further their private interests. Flat prohibition, no exceptions, are not permitted. Uh, in 1993, you see similar type of language from the Delaware Supreme Court. The duty of loyalty mandates the best interest of the corporation and its shareholders, 
at that dual formation again, takes precedence over any interest possessed by a director, officer, or controlling stockholder. Any interest. Once again, no exceptions, absolute, seemingly bright line. The duty of loyalty also encompasses an obligation to act in good faith. To satisfy this obligation, the director must subjectively believe that the director is fulfilling the standard of conduct. So you actually have to believe that what you are doing is going to further the, the, the maximizing uh, over the long haul uh, of the interests of the equity. A director fails to act in good faith if you act for any other reason. And it doesn't matter the reason. Greed is not the only reason that pulls people from the path of the of propriety. So I'm quoting now from uh, uh, Vice Chancellor, I'm sorry, Vice Chancellor, Chancellor Allen, uh, our Delaware uh, icon. Uh, Bad faith can be the result of any human emotion that may cause a director to place his own interests, preferences, or appetites before the welfare of the corporation, including hatred, lust, envy, revenge, shame, or pride. You all may ask, come on. How often does lust come up in a corporate case? Uh, but I actually had a, a case where uh, the claim was that the lead negotiator on the sell side uh, was having a liaison uh, with a key member of the negotiating team on the buy side, and that that is what pulled this fiduciary from the path of propriety. So it can happen. So putting everything together so far, directors who wish to act loyally must seek to promote the value of the corporation for the benefit of its common stockholders. If they're not subjectively acting for that purpose, then they risk a fiduciary breach. And if they have any economic, professional, or personal commitment that could create a, a, a pull uh, that would compromise their ability to pursue that purpose, then they are risking a fiduciary breach. But now we get to Justice Frankfurter's third question, which is in what respect has the fiduciary failed to discharge these obligations? And this is where the distinction kicks in between the very strict rules that I was just discussing and the standards by which those rules are judged. Because to determine whether directors have complied with their fiduciary duties, we don't apply the standard of conduct, we apply the standard of review. So I hope you all remember from your biz orgs class, Delaware has three basic standards of review. The business judgment rule is our default standard of review. Entire fairness is our strictest standard of review. In between, we have uh, intermediate scrutiny or enhanced scrutiny, which is a reasonableness test. It applies where directors who look disinterested nevertheless are operating in a situation that is, is that puts hydraulic pressure on those directors such that it's hard to do what is in the best interest of the stockholders and we are worried about whether conflicts may arise. Um, in the interest of time, I am not going to go into those standards in detail. I'm going to believe that your professors have done an outstanding job uh, inculcating them deep in your hearts. Um, but I do want to note that in every dimension, every one of those standards is more lenient than the standard of conduct. So even entire fairness, Delaware's uh, most onerous standard, it anticipates that someone with a direct conflict, a direct self-dealing motive, could nevertheless engage in that transaction and come into court and prove that notwithstanding that motive, the transaction was entirely fair. All right, now let's take what 
we've gone through so far in terms of our, our three answers, and let's apply them to an activist scenario. Let's take a relatively standard and stereotypical non-nuanced activist campaign and assume we're in the first stage where a hedge fund has surfaced with something over 5% of the company's stock. Assume the managing director of the fund writes a letter to the board and the letter uh, argues for some short-term result. Maybe it's levering up the company and distributing capital. Um, maybe it's selling the company. And there's arguments about that the company is not being uh, uh, managed property, properly. Um, let's assume that he demands meetings with the board, and let's assume that some other stockholders uh, uh, express support for this hedge fund's position. In terms of complying with the fiduciary standard of conduct, the company's directors have no obligation to pursue the course of conduct that the hedge fund is proposing. They may think about it, they may agree with it, they may decide to prove it, prove it on their own, but there is no syllogism that because a stockholder has proposed a course of action, even if it's backed by a majority of the stock, that directors must do it, and if they don't, they breach. What the, what the directors instead have that obligation to do is to seek to enhance the value of the corporation for the benefit of investors who are the holders of presumptively perpetual uh, capital, the investors of presumptively perpetual capital in a perpetual entity. So rather than simply taking what the hedge fund says and going along with it, the directors are supposed to think and think hard. And if they agree that this is the horse and buggy whip situation, or this is a situation where what the hedge fund is saying uh, makes sense, then certainly they can do it. But there is no fiduciary obligation to do it. The board, in short, is free to sacrifice short-term opportunity in favor of long-term gain. And, and if anything, the fiduciary risk for the directors in this, in this standpoint, from this standpoint, lies in potentially too readily embracing the activist position. In fact, if the directors are changing their minds and abandoning a, 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 a deeply held, or at least strongly held, consistently held plan for what to do uh, with the business, there is at least some hint that they may be doing it because an activist situation is uncomfortable because pressure from activists is unpleasant, because it can lead to a proxy contest that could lose your seats. If the director in fact decides that it's just too much of a hassle to deal with someone belligerent and decides to, to back the activist on that basis, that is where the fiduciary breach lies. Because that is making a decision not because of what you believe is in the best interest of the corporation, but because of what is the easier path for you. So far, I've been discussing the standard of conduct, which describes the nature of the, of the director's fiduciary obligations. But a court that looked at this situation would not apply the standard of conduct. The court is going to apply the standard of review. And at least so far, there is nothing about this situation that would move us out of the business judgment rule. We're certainly not in entire fairness. An activist simply has surfaced and made a proposal. Nothing has happened yet that would put us in enhanced scrutiny. There isn't a sales situation. There isn't as yet a proxy contest. So what we have is the business judgment rule. So really, absent some type of, of director confession, 
that they in fact acted because the activist was, seemed uh, scary and it was going to take a lot of time to, to deal with this guy? Absent something like that, this is a case where there is a standard of conduct that is strong, but an enforcement mechanism uh, uh, that is lenient and gives broad deference uh, to the directors. So in terms of actual litigation risk, real-world litigation risk, the risk is non-existent at this phase. The, the possibility of some fiduciary departure, simply because of human nature, may be real, but the litigation risk uh, uh, is non-existent. Now let's move to a second stage. At this point, let's assume that the board has not adopted any of the hedge funds' proposals. The activist has met with the board, they've had some meetings, uh, perhaps they've been uh, uh, unproductive to uh, varying degrees. So the hedge fund has, at this point, proposed nominees and launched a proxy contest. How do the standards of uh, conduct operate now? They don't change. For purposes of the standards of conduct, the directors remain obligated to act in a manner that they subjectively believe will enhance the value of the corporation as a whole for the benefits of its holders with the view that those holders are perpetual investors in a presumptively perpetual entity. They still have no obligation to pursue a short-term strategy unless they truly believe that that's in the best interest of the company, its investors. They still have no obligation to deviate from their plan to maximize the current stock price. But what changes at this point is the standard of review. Because we're now in a proxy contest, and a proxy contest is one of those structural situations where even if you are an independent person trying to do the right thing, we are worried about whether you will actually be able to subjectively do the right thing. Uh, uh, the Abrahamian case from the 1980s says this in a, in a great way. A candidate for office, whether as an elected official or as a director of a corporation, is likely to prefer to be elected rather than defeated. He therefore has a personal interest in the outcome of the election, even if the interest is not financial, and he seeks to serve from the best of motives. So consequently, this is a situation where we are going to apply that middle standard of review, enhanced scrutiny, and we're going to ask whether what the directors do in response to this contest falls within a range of reasonableness. So directors are certainly free to communicate. In fact, they, are, they, they absolutely should communicate with stockholders uh, to provide them uh, with all information they need in terms of how to vote, and they can use uh, corporate resources uh, for that uh, to share that message. But if the directors do anything that could affect the outcome of the proxy contest, such as moving a meeting, or such as adopting an advance notice bylaw, or even uh, issuing a block of stock, at that point, enhanced scrutiny applies, and the burden would be on the directors to show that they actually fulfilled their fiduciary duties. We would ask whether they acted within a range of reasonableness to determine whether they did. Now, in my view, enhanced scrutiny would even apply in this setting to a settlement. And certainly settlements of proxy contests are customary, and many settlements are perfectly fine, but I would nevertheless think that enhanced scrutiny would apply uh, to a settlement because of that concern about why are the directors settling. So envision, for example, a full slate campaign that the directors settle in return for two or three new board seats, or even the replacement of one or two, but minority representation and a long standstill. What have they just bargained there? 
They've addressed the risk of immediately being voted out of office by giving up a couple seats and locking out the person who is now shown to be the most likely challenger for a lengthy period. Now you can, you can draw back from that most extreme example, but it is the, a, a settlement nevertheless implicates to some degree the director's self-interest and I therefore would apply uh, enhanced scrutiny to it. But it's also important to realize that applying enhanced scrutiny is not the same as holding that directors didn't meet enhanced scrutiny. It should be very easy for directors to show that that type of settlement is nevertheless in the best interest of the company, particularly when they have skilled advisors. Uh, so even there, uh, in terms of real-world litigation risk, unless directors do something particularly aggressive to, uh, to block the proxy contest or interfere with the proxy contest, the real-world likelihood of an adverse outcome is very low. Now let's go to stage three. And now let's envision the boardroom after several activist directors have come on the board. And this is the first time that we're talking about people on the activist side of the table, because before this, the activists were only stockholders. They weren't fiduciaries. They didn't have anything approaching anything that the Delaware would look at as a, as a controlling uh, position. So they have been in a non-fiduciary role throughout this. Now that they have nominees on the board, though, those nominees are directors just like anybody else. Once again, for purposes of the standard of conduct, no difference. You've heard it now multiple times. You know the answer. Act, act, uh, do what you subjectively believe is the right thing for purposes of maximizing the benefit of the company for the benefit of its stockholders, not today, although it might be today, but over the long term based on a perpetual, presumptively perpetual entity with presumptively perpetual investors. Now, in terms of the incumbents, the real risk for the incumbents right now from a litigation standpoint and the standard of review is the factual record that the proxy contest may have created. Um, that factual record can be used to call into question the motives of the directors if they suddenly do something different than what they were saying in the proxy contest was the right thing for the company. Um, that type of contradiction could support a an inference in litigation, particularly at the pleading stage, that would say that the directors are no longer acting in the best interest of the company. They've, in fact, taken the easy way out. And I recently dealt with this in a case called PLX stockholder litigation. Um, the company had run an initial sales process, but then FTC, uh, and they, they reached a deal with one bidder, but then antitrust concerns scuttled the deal. Um, there had been a second bidder mentioned in the proxy, and an activist saw that and said, oh, I know the answer here. We should just get these guys to sell to the second bidder went through all the stages of the campaign, and during the proxy contest, the directors were adamant that this hedge fund was a short-term investor running the wrong strategy, that selling the company was not the answer, or at least it was not the answer right now. It might be the answer in a few years, but it was not the answer right now. They lose the proxy contest, the activist gets on the board, and within approximately, uh, I want to say four to six months, six months, the company sold. Now, at the pleading stage, that reversal of position, that sudden reversal of position, combined with some, some odd flip-flops that the directors had done in a prior activist campaign, I thought was enough 
to make it reasonably conceivable that these directors were not doing what they thought was the right thing. They were instead bowing to the activist pressure, at least for the pleading stage, and hence the case uh, uh, would continue. So those are, now we're talking about, we've been talking about the, the incumbents. Now let's turn to the director representative that the activist elects. Same standard of conduct, but for them, the risk lies in their association, their affiliation uh, with the activist fund that, that uh, has elected them. If they are, are, are independents, just nominated by the activist fund, minimal risk, if any risk. But if they are a fiduciary for that fund, then they face that same type of dual fiduciary problem that our Supreme Court talked about in Weinberger. You can't serve two masters. You have a duty to maximize a fund which may have a very short-term investment horizon, may be looking to maximize quarterly or, or uh, at best this year's returns, and at the same time, you're attempting to exercise duties on behalf uh, of our long-term investors. That creates uh, a, a pull. If the interests of your, of your fund, your, other, uh, your, your dual fiduciary, if the interests of the two are aligned, no problem. So if you're appointed by a, a fund that is in for the long term, it probably would not be conflicting. But if you, are, um, uh, if you have been elected by a fund that has a, a decidedly short-term horizon uh, or other incentives, uh, then that would create uh, a divergent interest uh, that may give rise uh, to a conflict. Um, now it's important again here, it's not enough for a plaintiff just to come in and say, oh, we know these activist hedge funds, they're all short-termists. Anybody who's appointed by an activist and has an affiliation with an activist, they have a conflict. That is not enough, even under our notice pleading standards. You have to do more. You have to show that in this situation, there is a reason to, be, uh, to, be, uh, to question this uh, director's views. And this is another issue uh, uh, that I dealt with in PLX. And there, what at least at the pleading stage uh, was enough uh, uh, to let me let the case uh, go, go past the, the motion to dismiss um, were the detailed statements in the fight letters by the activist representative about what he and his fund wanted, combined with all of the detailed statements in the director's responses about what a terrible person this was and how he only wanted to benefit uh, uh, himself and the short-term interests of the company. Um, the, the incumbent directors want to just walk away from that, uh, but you know, as those of you taking securities know, and even as a matter of Delaware law, like when you speak, you're supposed to speak honestly. So having gone out to the market with, things say, with, with numerous uh, statements saying that this fellow was a bad actor and a short-termist, etc., um, I did not think it was possible at the pleading stage uh, to ignore those aspects uh, and not let the case proceed. The PLX case uh, uh, went ahead on to trial. I issued a, a decision on the merits. Uh, it's currently on appeal. Uh, and I'm sure that the parties uh, will present a wide range of issues to the Delaware Supreme Court. Uh, I wouldn't hazard any guesses on how it's going to come out, but I think it will be uh, interesting uh, and educational for everyone involved with these uh, scenarios. So we've dealt with three of Justice Frankfurter's questions. Uh, we've dealt with the activist scenario. Let's wrap up with his last question, uh, which is the question of remedy. Or as Justice Frankfurter frames it, what are the consequences of a director's deviation from duty? Uh, 
Um, so as we've seen, although fiduciary duties in terms of the standard of conduct permeate the activist scenario, the actual real-world consequences in terms of breach are low, and hence the likelihood of remedy is quite low. The real risk only lies if the board takes aggressive action to try to stop the activist campaign, uh, or if there's some sort of reversal of position of the board, or particularly a near-term sale, uh, after uh, the activist is elected. In those settings, a litigant who, uh, who can state a challenge to the, to the uh, action that the board has taken uh, and get past a motion to dismiss uh, is going to have the option of seeking either preliminary injunctive relief, which would stop the action from being completed, it would stop things in, the, in uh, its path. Uh, in terms of post-trial, um, the litigant would either be able to get permanent injunctive relief, making that preliminary injunctive relief permanent, or far less likely, damages. Those are essentially the remedies. Um, in terms of remedies for a fiduciary breach, the far more likely remedy, if there is going to be one, uh, is some type of injunctive relief undoing the bad act. Uh, it's, it's quite unlikely uh, that directors in Delaware would be held liable. Uh, but if there is a loyalty breach, a proven loyalty breach, then uh, 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 money damages are available and the potential remedy, although there is unlikely to be one, uh, could be expansive and even include uh, rescissory damages. So what ultimately uh, emerges from our analysis of fiduciary duties in the activist uh, uh, setting, particularly using Justice Frankfurter's uh, questions, is a regime that has strong, a strong normative component in terms of the standard of conduct, um, but a rel relatively uh, weak enforcement mechanism in terms of the standard review uh, and the likely litigation outcomes. Um, the, the possibility that directors may misstep in responding to an activist campaign because of the highly charged nature of it, that possibility is, is real. The likelihood that there will be a meaningful litigation and some form of remedy is quite low. So what this means is that there's a great deal of flexibility for director action, a large role uh, for counseling, uh, and a relatively minimal role uh, for the courts. Uh, that, I'd suggest, uh, is an optimal outcome uh, in a uh, country that generally uh, uh, likes to promote the freedom of market act actors and individuals and likes to minimize uh, the role of the courts uh, in supervising uh, these settings. So I want to thank you all again uh, for inviting me here. Uh, it's been great to be here. Uh, I hope you all appreciate what it means to be here. Uh, and I'd be happy to take a few questions until uh, Quinn tells me that we've run out of time.